0: If you have a Bible, would you grab it and open up to Psalm 131? Thank you all very much. That was an awesome time of worship. Um, Psalm 131. We're going to be jumping all over the place a little bit this morning, but we'll start there. We are continuing in our series calling Rhythms of Remembrance, where we're anchoring our hearts into that uh, which God has instructed us of who we are, of how God has wired us and made us. Uh, We've looked at how this is a biblical theme, that we are to We are to remember all that God has delivered us from. We are to remember all that God has delivered us out of, that he's given to us salvation and life and peace and joy and all these wonderful things. And it helps anchor our hearts to worship Him and to live this life today for him. And so we're going to be looking at what it means today to have a calmed and quieted spirit and to be contented in all of who Jesus is for us. Um, so in order to set us up and to anchor our hearts into the Word of God, uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 131. It'll be on the screen behind me. I'm going to read it. This is a Song of Ascent of David. God's Word says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time and forevermore. And then we're going to springboard as a placeholder. I'm going to read Philippians 4.12, which will also be in this morning. This is from the Apostle Paul. And I want to remind you that he is writing these words. I'm about to read, while in prison. Paul writes this. I know Philippians 4.12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in poverty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content this idea of contentment, this idea of resting in all of who God is for me and not letting circumstances and situations dictate and drive our hearts is a very hard thing to grasp and live in. In fact, Shakespeare wrote about this very idea in a play, Henry VI, in Act II. There's this brief telling that ensues. It's these gamekeepers, and they're talking to the king, and the king is dressed down, if you will. So uh, this brief little dialogue ensues when the king introduces himself, and these gamekeepers say this to him, but if thou be a king, where is thy crown? And the king replies, my crown is is in my heart, not on my head, not decked with diamonds or Indian stones, nor to be seen. My crown is called content, a crown it is that seldom a king enjoys. Now, I think he could have equally said a crown that seldom anyone enjoys. This idea of being content, this idea of having contentment, of being okay with our lot. And so our study in Psalm 131, David is going to remind us that a calmed and quieted soul, that verse we love... is, is one that uh, it first must start with a contented heart, that our eyes won't be serving all these other things that we need to grab and get and attain to. And all of those other things that we think that if we just get them, if we could just have them and we chase them, is the, this idea that the Bible calls covetousness. And covetousness will inevitably spoil any chance or any experience that we may have at contentment, And this is a timely passage for us to look at in Psalm 131, because this idea of coveting all these things that are out there that we think will bring us joy and peace and happiness are about to come uh, crashing down on all of us. We have hit November. Can you believe it's already November? This is insane. We're about to hit Black Friday sales, Flash Friday, Flash sale Thursday, uh, this, that, and the other. Like, all this, your inboxes are going to be inundated with the world telling you, you have to get this, you have to have this, this is the latest, this is the greatest, Um, these this new sale is never going to happen again, so click now to get your chance, right? We're going to get marketed to like never before right now in this month to say, these are all the things you need. And it's going to come crashing in on us in just a few weeks. So I think it's timely that we, as God's people, say, Lord, may you be my hope. Lord, my heart and my mind doesn't need all of these other things and doesn't need to chase all of these other things to find contentment, but it is found in you. Our world and our culture today, church, is materialistic to the hilt. Uh, Some of the best-selling books of the last decade... Are think and grow rich, 10 ways, 10 keys to prosperity, the instant millionaire, the millionaire next door. And all of them are addressing this foolish fantasy that a person's life consists in the abundance of our possessions, in the ability to house as much resources as humanly possible for our own using. And this is a folly that Jesus addresses in Matthew 6. And he points out, he gives us his idea, he says, Don't you know that God cares for all of his creatures? You don't have to chase all of these things. God cares for you. You don't need to live your life with the preoccupation of chasing worldly, materialistic things. It's a dead-end well that will never satisfy you. Contentment in the 21st century is a rarity. Um, And in fact, it's not just in the 21st century. There's an old Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs and he wrote a book in 1657 uh, titled this, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. So we think, oh man, we've got it so bad because of all the email marketing lists that we're we're so uh, prone to and all these things that they must have, like Christians back in the day must have just been like praying all the time, just reading their Bible and singing hymns and just living for the Lord. No. They, there was a book published said, called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment in 1657. This is a struggle. This is a human struggle. No matter what's in front of us, we chase it as something that will give us ultimate purpose. And the Bible roots and anchors our hearts saying, no, only God can be that for you. And so each of us this morning, if we're honest with ourselves... Especially leading into this season, probably already started thinking about it because of supply chain issues. Or, oh, gosh, if you're like me, have got to get out in front of this. Supply chain issues. We've got to order now. It gets here on time, right? Maybe that's just me, right? I'm pre- this is just a sermon to myself. This is wonderful, okay? But if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're too easily just swept up into this. We're bombarded by a spirit of discontentedness. And it's directly related oftentimes to kind of our lot in life. Some of it is financial, some of it's social, some of it may be uh, physical. But in some way, we find ourselves like children oftentimes, displeased with what we've been given, frustrated that our friends have more, that our friends get to do this, that, or the other, and we're willing to do whatever it takes to rectify our circumstances so that we can have what they have. And so many of us live our lives in that gerbil wheel. And this is a hard sermon for me to preach because I struggle with this. We struggle with this, I think, even in our culture because it's like, whatever, it's just, it's just here, it's upon us. And Psalm, this psalm, Psalm 131, begins verse 1. The NIV translates it. I, I like the NIV translation. It says, my heart is not proud. It says, my eyes are not haughty, are not arrogantly proud, just serving all the things out there that I long for and I want. And I think we have to stop there for a moment in verse 1. And sit in that and say, Lord, have you made my eyes not proud? My heart not proud and my eyes not haughty, not arrogantly just scanning the horizon to see what I can get to make my life have meaning and purpose, thinking it's just out there. Because we love verse two, I have stilled and quieted my soul. I want that. That's a good coffee cup, like one, like yeah, we can think about just stilling and quieting my soul and we can just kind of be there and it'll, we can put it on a motivational picture or whatever, we can think about that and we love that one. But this is written on purpose. We have to get through verse one before we can get to I have stilled and quieted my soul. So number one, my heart is not proud. That's, that's a problem that all of us face. We have proud hearts. We think we know it's best. We think we know what we should get and what we should want or, or, or on the flip side, we, a proud heart, will say these things to God or about our lot in life. Why am I experiencing this? Why does this happen to me? Why does this always happen to me? Why is this taking place? Or God, I need an explanation for this one. And we become the prosecutor and we put God up On the dock, so to speak. That's an expression of pride and arrogance. Second thing we read, our eyes are haughty. They're scanning and they're longing and looking for things. It's an arrogant pride, that word haughty. And we're we're looking to grab onto things that we have no business letting our eyes and minds drift to. Letting our eyes take in so that our hearts will be taken captive by all of these things that are out there. Um. see, God's ways are the best ways. Having God in front of us is the best thing for us to gaze at. That should put our heart at rest. God is in control of our lot in life. God is in control of us. And so letting our hearts rest in all of who he says that we are will be the only way to produce that calm and quiet spirit. Not scanning at all these other things that we just think we need to grasp and get. So what he's saying in verse one, the second half, I do not concern myself with great matters. He's saying I'm not letting my heart just be thrown headlong into all these things that I think will bring me pleasure, and that I think will bring me ultimate happiness, but instead, I want to turn my heart to the Lord. I don't want my heart to be, and my eyes to be discontented with that which God has given me, um, because we're all going to face this, this month especially, next month especially, and I think as a church, we just need to say, Lord, I just want more of you, Help me see all of who you are. Help me to long and help my eyes to scan the horizon to see you. This your, your beauty, your goodness, the church that you've given to me that I can, I can hear more of about who you are, right? So my question is, is looking at this in Psalm 131 and then hearing the passage in Philippians, is how did Paul learn the secret of contentment that he talks about in Philippians 4, that passage I read. Because if Paul can learn that, then I think we will get to verse 2 and 3 in Psalm 131. I have stilled and quieted my soul. My hope is in the Lord. So how did Paul get there? Listen to these words again. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secrets of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in poverty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's another coffee cup verse right there that we've probably all heard. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which I believe is the NIV translation. That's a famous verse, but if we just detach that verse and unplug it from the broader context of what Paul was going through, it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. So just let's do a quick survey real quick of, of how did Paul learn this secret? How did he get here? How did he say that? Well, first of all, he's writing these words in prison. He's writing these words from a prison cell. And he says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And he's in prison. So it's not like he's like on a beach somewhere on vacation. He's not, this is not like a theory for him. He's living this out. He's saying, My situation does not determine how I feel about the Lord and whether I'm contented with all that the Lord has given to me. But if we unplug that verse, uh, we don't have the context. So we've got to remember this passage in Philippians was written to a church that had been planted in a city. And here's the, quickly, let's look at the backstory. The backstory is Paul had gone to the city on a missionary journey. He planted this church, and that story, I encourage you to read Acts chapter 16, tells us the story of this church in Philippi that was planted. I don't have time to get into all of it. I'm gonna do my best to, to, to run through it in the time that we have here. But when Paul would go to a city to go plant a new church to preach the gospel about Jesus and all that he has done, he would go, first of all, looking for a synagogue, and he would go oftentimes into the synagogue and tell these God-fearing worshipers of the God of the Old Testament that the Messiah you've been waiting for has come, and then he would connect all the dots about who Jesus was, and many would be converted, and they would plant a church there. However, Paul goes, and there's no synagogue, and so uh, he, he doesn't find one, so they're, they hadn't established yet. And so what Paul does is he just kind of, the story goes, he goes to this river, and he finds this lady named Lydia, and Lydia is an interesting woman. Lydia has a place, she has a home in Philippi. She was from another place in Asia Minor, and so she had traveled to Philippi and established a home there because she was a businesswoman. So it tells us what kind of business she ran. She was a seller of purples. So where she came from, there must have been this dye that she could dye fabrics or she could dye different things, and she brought it over to Philippi to sell these goods that she had uh, made. So essentially, Lydia would be, uh, she owned her own fashion company. She would be a CEO of a boutique fashion clothing line. That's Lydia. She's like, she's... Capable, She traveled. She set up a new home. She's run this business. People are buying it. She was well-to-do. She had multiple homes, right? She was super successful. The text also tells us that Lydia was a God-fearer. So many believe that she used to worship pagan gods. She became a Jew, and now she was in this Philippi area, and she was confused spiritually. She's like, there's these gods, and then there's this god, and here she meets Paul. So she's this uh, wealthy business owner that's very spiritual but confused about who God was and what he's like. I think that's a pretty good example of our current culture. Wanting very spiritual, wanting a connection with the spiritual, but confused about how do I make sense of all of this? So Paul meets Lydia. He shares the gospel with her. He connects all the dots for her. He says Jesus lived the perfect life, died a brutal death. He rose again on the third day. Lydia becomes a believer, is converted. She becomes the first member of this new church in Philippi. Church planted, one member, Lydia. Praise God. Keep going in this story. Paul meets a young Greek uh, demonic-possessed woman whoa very different story than lydia right it's like oh my goodness talk about juxtaposition here okay so this woman obviously we could go on and on has a ton of issues right so paul meets her she's a slave she's economically impoverished she has nothing she's been abused she's being taken advantage of by uh, people in her community she is uh, she's a mess right <laughs> Paul shares the gospel with her, deals with the demons, casts out these demons, uh, shares Jesus with her. She gets saved, second member of the church in Philippi. Right? Then the story keeps going. Paul and Silas, as they're continuing to share the gospel with all these people, they get thrown into jail. Right? This is a common theme with Paul. Like, you share the gospel, we're going to put you in jail. So they get, Paul and Silas, they get thrown into jail. They're literally being tortured By this jailer that they encounter, who is a Roman soldier that is placed there in Philippi, who basically tortures people for a living. Sounds like a great guy, right? Uh, So this Roman soldier is doing just that. They get put in stocks, they're in chains. Some people think that when they're put in stocks, that means their arms were put up top and their legs were in chains, their bodies are literally being stretched and pulled. So it's not pleasant, to say the very least. So he's torturing them, and the text tells us that Paul and Silas are singing. They're singing to the Lord. They're worshiping God, praising God, in a jail, being tortured. This Roman soldier has never seen anything like this. He freaks out. He's like, these guys are suffering. I'm doing my very best here. I'm doing some of my best torturing work, and they're singing. Like, what's up with these guys? This doesn't happen. Freaks them out. And this, this Roman soldier asks us the question that all of us Christians just pray that all of our non-Christian friends would ask us. Just a total layup here, sirs. What must I do to be saved? Right. It's just kind of like, oh yeah. So they knock it out of the park. Paul and Silas don't miss this uh, cryptic kind of spiritual conversation, right? That's happening. They're like, oh, I get it. This guy wants to know about Jesus. So this. Roman torturer in the jail cell meets Christ after Paul and Silas share the gospel with him, third member of the church in Philippi. Quick review. Rich, single business owner, CEO of Purple Fabrics, Lydia, Greek, demonized, impoverished girl with full of tremendous issues, mean, gruff Roman prison guard that tortures people for a living. That's Paul's core group in Philippi. Like, what? If he was being assessed as a church planter, they would be like, hey, bro, uh, man, I, I know you're awesome and you can like preach and everything, but... I think we may need to like back up the plan and reevaluate and maybe talk about relaunching when we get a little, when your core group really rounds out a little bit more. This, you know, that, that would be the, con- if I was the assessor and uh, Paul, the church planter is like, so I got, uh, I've got this Lydia girl who sells purples. I got the de- the demon possessed girl that's, She's, we're still working through a lot there, as you can imagine. And then this dude that tortured me in Silas uh, for a number of days in prison, uh, I'm still limping and hurting, but he came to faith. So we're, we're getting ready to go. Okay, good luck with that, Paul, right? So that's the core team here. That's the core group here. And so he, here's the context. Paul is writing this letter, Philippians, where he talks about contentment while he's in prison, he's back in prison, 10 years later to this church that he helped plant. They shared the gospel with these people and they kept sharing the gospel and more people began coming, more people's lives were being transformed by the goodness and mercy of Jesus and he was saving and rescuing and growing this family of God of these ragtag, unlikely group of people and Paul writes them 10 years later. And when you read the book of Philippians, amazingly, this is the only epistle that Paul's not having to deal with some crazy person polluting the church. Of all the churches, and how, like this one started like how we just described it, you'd think, this thing is going to be full of problems 10 years later. This is the only one that he's not addressing these major theological concerns. Paul loves this church. He loves these people. There's one little disagreement uh, at the beginning of chapter 4 with a couple of ladies. You can read about that later, right? But we read over and over again. He doesn't have any major beef. He's not trying to correct um, bad theology. He writes them because he loves them, and he's going to affirm them over and over and over again. He's going to keep telling them, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. No matter what your circumstances are, rejoice in the Lord. And that's the theme of the book of Philippians is joy and rejoicing in the Lord to treasure God and let the reality of who God is through our Lord Jesus Christ rest on our hearts so that it becomes our reality rejoice in the Lord he'll say chapter one Paul talks about having peace which is synonymous with joy chapter two he says be encouraged same thing Chapter three he talks about maturity as our root of joy. In chapter four, he says, don't be anxious. Sorry, my beard's giving me issues here. I need to trim it back. The sound guys always tell me. And here at the end of chapter four, Paul gives us the most helpful way to having this life that is rooted in the joy of Christ. He's saying, how do we have true joy? He says, contentment. That's how we have joy in this life. He talks about joy, 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 joy to this church that he planted 10 years ago with these unlikely people. And he says, you want to be content in life? Um, You want to have joy in life? Be content. Being okay with who you are and what you have. Being okay in the Lord, in Christ, no matter what's going on around you. That's a hard lesson right now to learn. There's a lot going on around us. There's a lot that bombards us, not just with marketing stuff, but uh, politically, socioeconomically. uh, You name the issue, there's so much that we're being bombarded with. Paul says, fix your eyes on Jesus and be content in him. And that is the only real path to joy, is it's found in Christ in all that he's given to you. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that contentment is possible or a good concept. It actually promises and commands it. 1 Timothy 6.8, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If you have food and clothing, you're good. It's hard to believe sometimes. The Bible says, God really, really, really does care about you, and if you have food and clothing with these, you'll be content. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money or the worship of money. Be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The more we feel the need to grab at things outside of Christ, the more we're tricked to believing that Jesus will abandon us if we don't get that. Or I won't, if, I, if, I just, if I can't have this much, then I'm, my life is going to be wrecked or ruined. So we chase these other things. The idea here is that we can be content right now because the one that made you, the one that created you, will never leave you and never forsake you. So I want you to think about your life for a moment. Maybe even let's rate ourselves. Not out loud. It right? might get a little strange, right? On your level of contentment, on the level of contentment that you have right now, 10, uh, 10 would be like, I'm so content, I'm really honestly surprised I'm not in heaven. <laughs> you know, like, lo- I'm so contented, It's just like, I feel like Jesus is right next to me, and it's just the one most wonderful, like, praise God, I hope all of us are there. One is, I am surprised I made it today, and I want to be in the fetal position crying. Okay, so that's, our, that's the spectrum here. So where are you at on there? Where are you at on, the, on that scale? The thief that comes to steal our contentment uh, is something that we talked about earlier, is the Bible calls it coveting. The thief that comes to steal that and wants to get you down in the fetal position is to get your heart and your eyes and your mind to covet that which you don't have and spend your life chasing it. The Bible talks about coveting a lot. We don't use that word in our culture. We call it window shopping. Or we call it, in my case, online research. (laughs) Right? What are you doing over there, Sean? Oh, I'm just, I've always got some new, like, I've got some new thing that I'm, like, wanting to do or figure out. And it's just, like, this endless rabbit hole of information that always, oh, man, if only I could get this to do, like, and let's, and we just, it just you're like then one day you're you're like how did I end up how did I get here I'm making sourdough bread and I really care about like the starter and all the little stuff in the air that make, like you're like what I didn't even know that I wanted to do that like six months ago but now I'm doing like right you just you end up somewhere you never thought you'd end up um and we begin to covet and think oh if I can just get that then my heart. Will be stilled, and then I'll be quieted and at peace. Um, We have to understand what comes in to steal our contentment, and it's coveting that which is out there that we think will give us ultimate peace. The tenth and final commandment, the Old Testament, tells us uh, not to covet that which is not ours. It's this inner desire that wants meaning and happiness and completeness apart from God. Coveting is thinking that we can have something else or someone else besides God bring us ultimate happiness. And God's saying here he wants us to experience him in such a way that you are content because God is everything to us. Coveting is both over-desiring that which we already have and also over-desiring that which we don't yet have or that which we want. So job, money, friends, this, I mean, you can, the list goes on and on. And this kind of coveting has a motto that goes something like this. um, When I get that, then my life will be happy. We all have that. When I get this, then my life will be happy. When I get that new house I've always dreamed I've wanted, when I finally get to travel, when I get a raise, when I get that, 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 the dream job that I want, when I, maybe when I get married, when I finally graduate and get out of school, when I'm able to get this new whatever, the new job, the new clothes, it's, and it's always in the future. And the minute you get it, there's another thing you want on the other side of it. And it never stops. Um, And when you begin to lose your contentment in God, we begin to grasp for it outside of him. Now, what I'm I'm not saying is that you cannot enjoy that which God has given you that which God has given you. I'm not saying that we should forsake all things in the world and that all material things are bad. What I am saying is that those things that God has given to you and ask you to steward as his resources and his kingdom are never, never meant to uh, give you peace in life. They cannot occupy that place. They are never those things that God gives to us and these things that maybe other people have that you wish you have. When you have it, they will never put your heart at rest. They won't produce the joy that, they, that you think they're going to produce. They will for a season, but it's like a sugar high. Any parents in the room just came off of uh, Halloween trick-or-treating, uh, whatever we call it, a uh, trunk-or-treat, whatever word you want to use, where kids go and get giant bags of candy they bring home and they dump them out, and what inevitably happens? They begin eating the candy, and it's really fun and great until the sugar crash hits and everyone's crying and they've stayed up too late, and you're like, what have I just done? This is horrible, right? That's what we do. Like, this is amazing, I'm going to get a big bag of goodies and it's going to be mine and my precious forever and we're going to eat it and, then, and it never produces. And then in fact, we're, we, once we get it, we're like, my brother got better candy than me and you're mad at him. It just produces all of these things in our lives. Look what Paul says, am I almost out of time? Yes, wow, got to cut a lot more out here. Paul says, I've learned to be content. Paul said, I had to learn this. Meaning, it's not natural. It's not automatic. If we fail to learn contentment, we're gonna miss out on this secret that Paul describes to us. Look at verse 12 again. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, and in every, any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment is a secret. It means... Not like, not like someone else has to whisper it to you. you know, it's, it's the the point is the the word it's getting at is it's it's elusive. It's not experienced often. It's quiet. Very few people live in it. Very few people get it. It's secretive, right? It's elusive. And it's only found in remembering and experience a love of God that he has for you and contenting your heart in God and God alone no matter what's going on around you, even if you're in prison, Paul says. And we know contentment is possible because the Bible says it is. And you can't get it by looking uh, for it in anything outside of him. You can't, you, you can't get it by the new house. You can't get it by whatever's on your list. So you think, if I just had that then? Because Paul is writing this in prison. He's saying, in any situation, your heart can be content in the Lord. Um, contentment is a strength issue, but it's not your own strength. It's not your human strength, it's a divine strength. Which is why the next verse that follows when he said this that he learned contentment in the secret is probably one of the most misinterpreted verses in all of the Bible, the coffee cup verse, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It's about letting God in fully when you're needy. It's about letting God in fully when everything is going right. All things. See, this is the Gospel of Christ as our strength. It means that it means that Jesus, it means that we can deal with success and failure when Christ is your strength. You can deal with abundance and need when Christ is your strength. But when you're depending on your own strength, when success happens, we get puffed up, and when we fail, we get beat down. So many of us live our lives either puffed up or beat down based on our circumstances right now. Paul says, that's not the Christian life. He says, you need to remember that Christ is your strength. It's found in a person. It's not yourself, but it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. The way most of us live is up and down on this yo-yo roller coaster. And Paul says, I can do all things. It's not. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean... If I just pray this prayer, I'll always hit the home run. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It means if I hit the home run, praise God, that's not where my satisfaction and contentment comes from, or I strike out and let the world down, I'm still okay because Christ is my contentment and my joy. I can fail miserably. I can succeed at the mountaintop level but that doesn't dictate my joy. Because Christ is my contentment. In abundance, and in a need, in prison or on the beach. We don't need to let our circumstances dictate our contentment and joy. We trust in something outside of ourselves. We trust in Christ alone. Remember Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, is not proud. My eyes are not raised too high, they're not haughty. I'm not looking for all these other things outside of myself. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me, but I have a calmed and quieted soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time and forevermore, our hope would be in him. Church, only Christ can produce this contentment in us because he accomplished everything for us. And he tells us to remember him. So today, as we close, I'm gonna invite the band back up. Uh, We're gonna take the Lord's Supper. And we're gonna tangibly take of the bread in the cup, that which he gives to us, that says, I will nourish and satisfy you. Uh, I am the one that you truly need. And let this, the Bible tells us that each time we do this, we do this in remembrance of Jesus. And remember our contentment is rooted and grounded for us. So I'm gonna ask some folks to come that are gonna be serving. Uh, uh, we're gonna have um, a gluten-free option in the back. That's not That one is open. All of them are open to everyone, but if you need gluten-free, that'll be in the back. Uh, and I will say when we take the Lord's Supper, it'll be served to you. So uh, the communion stewards are gonna dip and give it to you uh, as you come forward, and that's not how we used to do it, but that's how we're doing it now because we live in a new world. Um, and so 1 Corinthians 11, uh, God's word tells us this, for I've received from the Lord what, also, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to ask you to uh, either come to the front or go to the back and take the Lord's supper and remember all that he has accomplished for you. That we are children of God because of that which Jesus has done, his broken body and his shed blood, the blood of the new covenant, which now covers us and our hearts can be quieted and stilled because Jesus' accomplishments are now ours. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we come to your table and we take this bread and this cup that we would remember all of who you are for us. And God, that you would minister to each person in this room that comes and takes the Lord's Supper no matter what's going on in their life. Whether they are facing tremendous need or they have plenty. Would you root their hearts and give them joy even outside of their circumstance because it comes from you from your salvation, from your life that you give to us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord's Supper. And Lord, we remember you and we worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all come as you're ready.